Well, because of the length of that video, I will give a shorter sermon today. How about that? Or at least I'll try. Early in our marriage, I think it was week number two in our marriage, we were driving around as newlyweds and a country music song came on. Alan Jackson was singing, I'll try, I'll try to love only you. I was singing that to my wife and she said, oh, you'll do more than try. So I will do more than try to preach a shorter sermon today. Hey, a couple of months ago, I read it this week, Fast Company Magazine did a a very uh, interesting article on the most memorable, recognizable, impactful logos, company logos uh, in our land. I'm going to put several of them up front. There are sometimes subtle hidden messages uh, in these. Here's the first. This is what? This is the swoosh, the Nike swoosh. And of course, many of you know Nike is the Greek word for victory. And this swoosh represents, allegedly, one of the wings of this Greek goddess of victory. Behind the scenes story here on the Nike swoosh, uh, a college uh, student, a co-ed, a graphic designer, a girl by the name of Carolyn Davidson was paid $2 an hour to develop this logo. She made a whopping $36 and early on Phil Knight of Nike fame said, I don't really love it, but maybe it will grow on me. Second logo here is Amazon, and you'll notice here this line, it goes from A to Z, and the idea there is that you can shop and buy anything from A to Z. The subliminal message there is happiness. You are happy if you buy things from A to Z. The serious message there is Amazon is happy if you buy things from A to Z on there. Another recognizable, memorable, impactful logo is FedEx. I never noticed this, but you see in the X of the FedEx, what do you notice in between the E and the X there in orange and red? It's an arrow, right? And the idea there is the message is moving forward. In fact, we're moving forward. We're moving fast because why? It absolutely positively has to get there overnight, despite the danger. Next one, Baskin-Robbins. Now, maybe you're going to accuse me of being culturally dumb or living under the cleft of a rock somewhere, but I never knew that in the B and the R is the number 31. Anybody else not know that? Please make me feel good. This is your chance to make me feel good for at least a second. There are 31 flavors, and God and I know the only one that counts is chocolate mint. Come on, Baskin-Robbins. Here's one, Tostitos, okay? I knew that corporate sponsorship had gone too far in the 2010 uh, Fiesta Fiesta Bowl sponsored by Tostitos when Auburn was about to kick a game-winning field goal against the Oregon Ducks. And Brent Musburger said, as they lined up the kick, this one is for all the Tostitos. (sighs) Notice there the... The two, it's only me that's disgusted. Notice there, I never knew this, the two T's, what represent two people, and what are they doing? They're dipping that chip up in that salsa. Yes, they are. Next logo is Starbucks, not even a name there. What would happen if Starbucks went out of business? What would happen to the country if coffee was reduced so greatly? We would collapse as a country, or some of you would in your cubicle in the morning. Another recognizable logo, Google, it's just the word. Is that kind of arrogance? Just the name, Google, that's all they need. There is, uh, they say, the, the criterion for a good logo is that it is, as I said, recognizable, it's memorable, and that it's impactful. A good logo has that. And you know the most impactful, the most famous image of all? Well, let's, in modern culture, one more. It's this. Yes, the golden arches. 
But in history, all through the years and to today, the most impactful, memorable, recognizable image is probably one that some of you are wearing, that many of you have one or 17 of them at home, and that so many of you walk past this morning, a wooden one fastened together here on 3327 Old Canton Road. But think about it. What, what graphic design team, what marketing expert would design a symbol that represented execution, cruelty, torture, and death. You see, though we airbrush it and though we modernize it, the reality is that Jesus chose, even before his death on a cross, he talked about taking up our crosses. And he used this symbol, two pieces of wood fastened together that were used to execute criminals and slaves, only slaves. Only criminal slaves. And he used this to represent something. It is in this, on this Thanksgiving week, that I want to point you to 1 Corinthians in the first chapter. When we conclude this shorter sermon today, we will take communion. And we will consider what Jesus taught in all four Gospels and what is repeated in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When Jesus teaches us, do this in remembrance of him. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, we learned a little bit about this image, this logo. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And people, this is so rich. The word for word is a similar usage in English for message. If you have the NASB or the NIV and have it open in front of you, you'll see the word message instead of the word word. But this message of the cross, message is the Greek word logos. It's where we get our word logo. And it says folly, or many English translations, it says this, the foolishness. And foolishness is morai. It is moros. And it is where, anybody want to guess where we get our English word? Moron. You see, if you take up your cross and you daily follow Him and you choose to live counterculturally, you will at times, even in the good old Mississippi, you will at work, in places that you go, in the people that you meet, and even under your very own roof, you will meet people that think, man, you're devoting your life here. You're giving your life to Him for this in such a way Though they may not say it, they're likely at times thinking it. You are a moron. But in this, we see something, and we use this word often. It's sort of a big word, but maybe by its usage, it's becoming smaller and meaningful to many of you. But it's the word paradoxical, because in the cross, we see a paradox. We see a symbol. Yes, we see a symbol of loneliness, a symbol of brokenness and suffering and torture and death, but right there with it, we see a message of life and abundance and satisfaction and victory right there together. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23 will use this phrase that he will use again in 1 Corinthians 2.2. Let's look at them both now. He says the following, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 2.2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and what? Him crucified. For us, what does that mean? We've, we've kind of Jesus jived that today. We've um, Americanized it today, sort of cleaned it up 
and made it spotless. But back then it was strange and so odd, but yet so beautifully insightful. Christ crucified. What was Jesus' name? Jesus, fill in the blank. Jesus Christ. But was Christ his name? No. Christ was a title. He was Jesus of Nazareth, the place I got the fortune of visiting this past February. Jesus of Nazareth was his name. That was where he was from. But Jesus Christ, the Christ in Christ, represents a title. It means in the Hebrew, Messiah. To us, it means the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He bears that title. But Christ and crucifixion cannot, could not go together in that world. Because a crucifixion meant that you weren't the Messiah. A crucifixion meant you were dead and you died by Rome. A crucifixion meant maximum pain. Those criminals, those slaves who were killed on a cross, it took them hours and many times days to die. It meant maximum pain and it meant maximum public humiliation. Thursday morning, many of you woke up to Macy's Day Thanksgiving Parade. And the idea for us in our mind over Thanksgiving when we're just full of gratitude and when no one's arguing about politics, football, or religion, we're just full of gratitude. We watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and we understand a parade is a processional. It is, look at this. The idea there is, look at this, look at this, look at this talent, look at this band, look at this this singer, look at this Hollywood actress, look at this famous person, look at this um, Olympic athlete, look at these people, look, look, look at us. It's a time to showcase. And conversely, yet similarly, that's what happened in Roman culture. A crucifixion was a parade. It was a spectacle. They took the long route, and they walked the slave, the criminal, who was about to meet his death, It was a, look at this, look what he has done, and he has messed with Rome. And the central message of a crucifixion was, don't mess with Rome. Texas, they're kind of soft on it, honestly. You ever littered in Texas? I do, just to show them, right? Throw trash out the window, just kidding, kids. But don't mess with Rome was a serious offense. And that was the message. But wait a second. Paul is saying what the culture couldn't digest, what they couldn't readily understand. We preach Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, Christ crucified. Could it be that life is about paradox? Could it be that you could live your life thinking only this and missing this, and this is what it's all about? Could it be? Could it be that the purpose of life, that the nature of God, that the foundation of hope, that the power of suffering, sacrificial love that overcomes hatred and evil is the new radical reality of upside-down living. Could it be true? Christ crucified. These beautiful words, these truths that we hang our lives on were written 2,000 plus years ago to a city in Corinth. And just quickly, because this will be a shorter service a sermon, at least I'm going to try. This, uh, this, uh, I just want to give you a few fast facts about Corinth. Corinth was located, do you know, it was located in Greece and it was a city that was rebuilt by uh, Julius Caesar in uh, 44 BC. And Caesar populated Corinth 
with ex-soldiers and ex-slaves known as freedmen. In other words, people, there, were, there was no aristocracy. There was no nobility. It was just a city full of innovation, full of entrepreneurs from other parts of Greece, Italy, and Europe. And they were hungry and they were scrappy. It was sort of the definition, to use our words today, it was a startup. It was a rebuilt city, but a startup city full of entrepreneurs. And when Greece became a part of Rome, they chose as its capital, not Athens, but Corinth. Athens was a great city, but a city more that reflected the past. And Corinth was a city that represented, reflected the future. To the west was the Adriatic Sea. To the east was the Aegean Sea. It was located on the Isthmus. It was a geographically strategic city. There was travel and tourism and trade. It led to the establishment of banks. It was cosmopolitan and diverse, and people were there. Archaeologists have uncovered many fascinating things about this city of Corinth. The beginning of the banking system was there, and they realized that there were a lot of monuments being built. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul would later talk about us being a building, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it was amidst buildings that were being constructed by people who were striving to get ahead, who were touting their wealth. In fact, Plato said that no city in its time reflected more arrogance and ego and self-promotion. No other city more than the city of Corinth. And here there's this message of Christ, Christ crucified. So paradoxical. Could it be true? That what we're building our lives on, what we're hoping for, is, is false. One of the interesting things that archaeologists have brought to us today, they unearthed in the city of Corinth, in this city of trade, tourism, and travel, and wealth, they've uncovered the pluralistic nature and the religious nature, the establishment of idols all around the city. We know some of the famous gods or goddesses like Aphrodite, the god of love and beauty and fertility. 26 different famous gods or goddesses have been discovered in this ancient city of Corinth. It's why Paul, when he would get close to talking about communion, about doing this in remembrance of Jesus, he would talk about idols and what holds us and what gets in our hearts and has its way with us. One famous Presbyterian pastor said it this way about idols and idolatry. He said the chief principle of the Bible is the elimination of idolatry. In other words, to put it more simply, not us, not that, not that, not that, not that, but God. The central principle of the Bible is the removal or the elimination of idolatry. This Thanksgiving week sermon, I want to say to you two points about what we've read and about this ancient text in this fascinating city. The first one is this, that we need to give up our idols. And it's so easy to think. It is so easy to think that idolatry is something from the past. It's a primitive practice of graven images and things that were erected by archaic, not-so-wise people. But yet, we have, as one writer in Christian history said, our hearts themselves, our hearts, a factory of idols. Within you, it produces one after the other. 
How many places of worship do you think exist in America today? Any guesses? Turn to the person next to you. No way you're going to get this right. But just turn to the person next to you just for fun and to keep you awake. Uh, how many places of worship do you think there are in America today? I wonder if any of you can get even anywhere close. Now, it is, okay, it's always changing, right? Ever evolving. But the most recent snapshot I learned about, 260,402 places of worship in America. Just a snapshot from a reputable agency. But listen, I want to say to you, there are many, many more. Nearby, there are buildings made of steel and glass. And tomorrow, thank God it's Monday, tomorrow, thousands of people will enter into these buildings made of steel and glass. And they will go and sit down at a desk in some office or some cubicle. And they will find their sense of identity in this place. They will devote massive amounts of their time and their energy and their emotional well-being at this place. 40 hours this week, 50, 60, some more than that. Finding their identity there. It is their temple. It is their place of worship nearby in the direction that I'm pointing. In fact, there's another one being built now that'll be ready sometime in the next six months. And these are places where many worship. It's a place that has a vault and in the vault there's a safe and it's on lockdown. If they ever transport what is in the vault or the safe, they use an armored truck with several guards who have guns and who watch you, I've learned, if you approach that vehicle. And many people, some in this room, find their sense of security by what's in those buildings, in those vaults, in those safes. The idea there is to have your name on one and to amass a large amount and to secure what you've amassed in this safe and in this vault. There are many places of worship like those in our land today. There are other buildings nearby and where Rainbow Grocery has recently gone out of business in Fondren, there is coming another place called Fondren Fitness. And many of these buildings exist and they have mirrors in them, right? Because you can't have enough mirrors in these places of worship. And many enter in with athletic apparel with names like Nike and Adidas and Under Armour and Reebok and Russell Athletics. And people in these places of worship, in this temple, in this shrine, many worship their own temple. How many places of worship are there in America today? There is no way to count. So if you didn't get it right earlier, don't worry about yourself. There are just too many to count because we all, we all give our devotion to somebody. We all sacrifice to something. We all are looking for the good life somewhere. It says this in Ezekiel Elliott chapter 22. It says this, You have become guilty because of the blood you have shed and have become defiled by the idols you have made. We'll stop there. Listen, in a room like this morning with hundreds of people, I'm hoping that we can say, all of us, that you're not guilty because of the blood that you have shed. Okay, I'm hoping that's true. Now, around the Thanksgiving table... You, with your dysfunctional family, right? Those dysfunctional people sitting around you, right? You wanted maybe at times, you were about to shed some blood, right? Some innocent blood. But you're probably not guilty of that. But all of us, 
all of us in our own way, to varying degrees, have been defiled by the idols that we have made. And following a crucified Savior, preaching Christ crucified for us means that we need to give up these idols. And I want to tell you this morning that there are three things that idols do. do. It leads to this defilement. The first is it robs God. Now that ought to be enough. But your idolatry, the factory in your heart, what it's making, what it's producing in your life, it can rob God. You see, God is not some cold cosmic force. He's certainly not a robot. He's not some artificial intelligence machine. Scripture tells us that He thinks and that He feels. That our God is grieved. That our God takes delight. That our God expresses anger. And the, the central passage for the people of Israel so long ago, Deuteronomy 6.4. Many of you know this. A passage they said to write it on the tablet of your heart. Make it a graven image, not an idolatrous image because it's an act of worship to God. Talk about it around the table with your children. But it says this, love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Jesus would come later and say, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with all of you and don't put anything in front of Him. When we have idols in our lives, when we go to somebody and give them our devotion, when we sacrifice to something else, when we're looking for the good life somewhere apart from Him, we're robbing God of what He delights in, what brings Him glory and what is for our good, the true worship, heart, soul, mind, and strength, putting nothing in front of Him. Idolatry, if you don't give up your idols, idolatry robs God. And it also, hear me now, it also changes you. Look what it says in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2.5. This is what God says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? And here's what's so interesting. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. You become what you worship. Some of you did not like what you saw this week in culture. You did not like the behavior of some. You didn't like the arguing. You didn't like the distance. You didn't like their stance on issues. And some of us don't realize sometimes if you spot it, you got it. So let me ask you, if you're struggling with this idolatry thing, what do you organize your life around? What do you obsess over? What do you fear losing? What do you think about? What does your mind instinctively drift toward? What preoccupies you? What keeps you up at night? Where do you find your sense of significance? That, those questions will lead you to your idol or idols. And Jeremiah teaches us so long ago, thousands of years ago, I'm telling you, we need to hear it today. You follow after worthless things, you'll become worthless. If you follow what's false and empty, your life will reflect what's false and empty. Now, some of you are thinking, I'm glad my teenager's here today. Preach it, preacher. Don't go too short, preacher. Keep on preaching. But we need to hear it. Old lady, old man, you need to hear it. 
If you're young, you need to hear it. If you're old, you need to hear it. If you don't know if you're young or old, you're old. But we all, all of us, need to hear this. If you follow after what's empty and false, you become like that. Amen, Jeremiah. And don't you see it? Don't you see it in our world today? So if we don't give up our idols, it robs God. And it changes us. And the third thing I would say is, look, they can't do anything for you. Your idol, what you're worshiping, can't do anything for you. Oh, well, we're so advanced. RG, we don't need this stuff about idolatry today. That's for the primitive people of old. Listen to me and listen to the words again of Jeremiah and then from the psalmist, Jeremiah 10.5. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Don't you love the visual there? Like a scarecrumber, like a scarecrow, crumber. I'll try again. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Their idols cannot speak, neither can Robert Green. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. I just love that. I love the poetry. I love the image. But the truth can hit us hard. Man, these things that you're worshiping, they can't do anything for you. Psalm 135. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is their breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Give up your idols. They rob God. They change you. They can't do anything for you. Point number one, in following Christ crucified, give up your idols. Point number two, live under the cross. The paradox of this message, Luke 9, 23 and 24 says this. Then he, Jesus, said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple. By the way, let me say, do you know how many times we're invited to become a Christian in the Bible? Really zero? Uh, Christians are referred to three times. It's sort of a nickname thing. You You got a nickname or you have friends with nicknames. But we're told close to 200 times to become a disciple. Like, that's really important. In other words, what really matters is not a label or some religious system. You, do you get that? Like, that doesn't matter. What matters is that you're a student, an apprentice, a learner, a follower of Jesus, and you are becoming like Him. And can I tell you, if you're married, that'll really help your marriage. If you're a roommate, that'll help your roommate situation. Uh, If you're looking for what is deep and purposeful and to find hope, that will fill you up. There's nothing empty or false in becoming like Jesus. Can I get at least one amen this morning? Then he said to them all, I'm going to have to go back. Well, whoever wants to be my disciple, that's where I got lost. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Have you done that this week? Take up their cross daily. Follow me. And here's the great paradox. Jesus has so many. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. That's such an indictment on people that are seeking comfort and security and safety. Can I let that just hang over the room? Like, I mean, man, 
So in a way, we've indicted every American Christian probably. All right, I'm, a little, I'm on the stage. All right, I got the bright light shining off my bald head, but I'm guilty to some extent. But like, I'm walking through this period, though even though I'm discouraged by some things, God is comforting me and I have this sense of urgency about life. And I'm just caring, I think, less and less about safety, security, and comfort. Because I don't want to try to save my life. I want to lose it. Jesus saying, that's what a disciple is. And so guys, we, we give up our idols and we live under the cross because that's what it means. And can I tell you, our nation for a, a couple hundred years have been watching Christians, okay? Talking about being Christians and like, it's not very compelling. It is very resistible. But one who's becoming like Jesus, wow, wow, wow. Because the world has a hunger and a thirst for this. And it draws, man. It draws. And so, give up your idols and lift up the cross. Be about the cross. Take the cross with you. Lay your life at the foot of the cross. When you're at work, live being mindful of the cross. Let someone else speak up and sound smart in the meeting. Don't promote yourself. Cheer for your rival. Who does that? Do what Colossians 3.23, do you do this? Do your work heartily as unto the Lord. Do that. Pray for strength. And when you grow weak and wobbly, ask God to give you strength and perseverance and creativity and do it all for Him at home with your roommate or your siblings or with your spouse. Live under the cross Live under it and let it be a symbol to you that you're not there to rule their lives. Imagine that. No, you know and I know, right, that their lives would be so much better if they let you rule over them. But the cross should be a reminder that that's not why you are there. Take the Christ and the crucified Christ with you to work and at home and in your car. Years ago, when I was a single man, I was living in Miami and I was driving in traffic in Coral Gables. I remember this like it was yesterday and I got to a four-way stop and we didn't know who was going to go, me or this other man. And we kind of jockeyed for position and we miscommunicated some things and he got out of his car and came to my car. And I noticed as he was walking toward me, I noticed in his car there was a cross hanging from his rearview mirror. And I said to him, hey, you got a cross. And I'm in the ministry. We're like spiritual brothers. And that day I was so thankful for the cross. He didn't kill me at an intersection in Miami. Take the cross with you when you're driving. Some of you, like, you really need this. Like, like I think church is worth it if one of you would practice this. But like, take and lay your life under the cross when you're driving. Jesus. The crucified Christ with you everywhere. I want to close with this. As our team begins to make music and lead us in singing as um, deacons and friends come up to serve our communion elements. I'll remind you, as we talk about giving up our idols and living under the cross, I'll remind you of a story that the world watched. It was a global happening in 2010. In 2010, in Chile, 33 miners, 33 men were stuck some 2,000 feet below ground for 69 days. Remember this? No one had ever lived that low for that long and lived to tell about it. 
and with this group of men underneath the ground. One of them was a Christian man who had a cross. And they asked this man, Jose Enrique, to lead them in a daily Bible study. There were 33 men. Anybody want to guess how many men showed up for the daily Bible study? <laughs> 33. Good, good, good answer behind me. 33, Shannon. Thank you. All of you were spot on. Like they had nothing else to do. That's why you don't go to small groups sometimes. You got so much to do. But they didn't have anything else to do. 33 men every day showed up for the daily Bible study. And Jose Enriquez began to pray. And he started with a general prayer. God, we're not the best of men. Have pity on us. And then he started getting specific at one point, one day. Lord Victor Segovia over here, he drinks too much. you think Victor would take offense, but he was desperate. And when you're desperate, you're real. Sometimes you're only real when you're desperate. And he began to pray prayers and men began to own things and began to lay down their idols. Begin to think about the cross. Begin to think about what matters. Weeks and weeks later, 69 days was the number, they were rescued. The Chilean government, as worldwide media and me and you watched this, they emerged. The first man to emerge was a great-grandfather. Great-grandfather. Second man was a 19-year-old. Third man was Victor Segovia, who hadn't had a drink in 69 days. Mario Sepulveda was emerged, and he was the most famous man emerging from the scene because he did a dance. I mean, it was a phenomenal dance. I think this is online. You can look at it later. But Mario busted out some moves. And they all, as they emerged, were celebrating and high-fiving and hugging and pointing heavenward. A man named Yanni Boran emerged, and he had two women waiting on him, his wife and a mistress. The first didn't know about the ladder. That's probably why he was the last man to come out of the cave, right? <laughs> Here's the thing. Down below, they moved away from themselves. They realized with crystal clear clarity. It's foggy for some of us today, isn't it? But with crystal clear clarity, they knew that unless somebody up there came down to them here, they would have no hope. And Paul, to this scrappy, hungry, innovative city full of entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs and self-promoters, he would go on to say this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake, He came down. He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Let's stand today, and on Thanksgiving week, Offer our worship in communion. Let me with great clarity tell you today that we want you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to make this confession, to come today and to do what He says, to do this in obedience and remembrance of Him and take the bread, just grab it by the corner and dip just the bread into the cup. Some of you try to grab the cup. You're from a different denomination or faith tradition. We love you. Just don't grab the cup. Just dip the just dip the bread into the cup. It's Christ's body. It's Christ's blood shed for you. Jesus, receive our worship today as we come to the table and remember you. In you we pray. In Jesus, Christ crucified. Amen.